2: The character of Gilded Age socialite Mamie Fish, otherwise known as Mrs. Stuyvesant Fish, became one of the most followed characters in HBO's series The Gilded Age. With her pointed, no-holds-barred comments and ability to seemingly turn up everywhere, Mamie was a much-welcomed foil to the barbs shot between Mrs. Astor and Bertha Russell. Mamie Fish was real, She reigned at the top of the set, often called the 400, as one of the leaders of society. And while challenging Mrs. Astor in many ways, she never toppled her. Mamie's goals were perhaps different. At the time, she was called a fun maker. But by modern historians, most certainly, she is called a rule breaker. But who was she, really? The real Mamie? was complicated, controversial in some aspects, certainly with our modern sensibilities. Yet along with the real Alva Vanderbilt, she wasn't going to settle for the role that a made-up society told her she had to play. In wielding the power that she had in that constrained world, Mamie Fish broke the rules and most definitely broke the mold. I'm Carl Raymond, the host of the Gilded Gentleman History Podcast, where every two weeks we journey into corners light and dark for a look at America's Gilded Age, France's Belle Epoque, and England's late Victorian and Edwardian eras. You can't get very far into reading many of the books on the social history of the Gilded Age without encountering Mamie Fish. Her place in the big four of society rulers, including, of course, Mrs. Astor, Alva Vanderbilt, and Tessie Ulrichs, was well-acknowledged and as secure as any could have been based on wealth and family connections. Mamie was a larger-than-life personality from what we are told from the sources we have and from what we can ascertain. She cared little about what she said and whom she said it to. She could be sweet and hospitable, or you could be shredded with her acerbic tongue. But no one ever ignored her. If you were invited to a party at Mrs. Astor's, you went to secure your place in the social constellation. If you were invited to any party that Mimi ever threw, you went because you knew you were going to have a really good time. Stories of the outrageous limits she stretched the guide ropes of Gilded Age propriety are fascinating, and are quoted again and again. Perhaps mostly true, sometimes exaggerated, and they often elicit a comment from modern readers, she did what? Joining me today for a look at just who the real Mamie Fish really was And to discuss why she was important at the time and what we can gain from trying to understand her today are two extraordinary guests, indeed, each of whom has a unique perspective and insight on just who the real Mamie Fish really was. I am so honored to be joined by my very special guest today for this very special show. Right here at the table with me are historian and writer Keith Talion, who has appeared on the show several times and who is a real listener favorite. And as a truly incredible treat, Keith and I are joined by acclaimed actor Ashley Atkinson, whose characterization of Mamie Fish on the HBO series The Gilded Age is something we all watch to see, to see what she will say and do next. Keith Talion is a writer and historian. He's the curator of Keith York City on Instagram and runs his own New York City walking tour company. He holds degrees in history and urban planning and graduated from Hunter College with a master's degree in 2019. He is a contributing writer for the Daily Beast and has been a guest lecturer for the Cooper Hewitt Museum, City College, and the National Arts Club. He has been profiled by Condé Nast, The Times of London, El Decor, and The New Yorker. Ashley Atkinson is one of the most followed and buzzworthy character actors working today, with over a hundred professional roles to her credit. Her work includes stage, film, and television, including productions on and off Broadway, including the Broadway revival of Terrence McNally's *The Ritz*. She has won and been nominated for numerous awards for her stage work, including an Outer Critics Circle Award. Ashley has appeared in numerous films, including Martin Scorsese's The Wolf of Wall Street, and has worked with directors including Spike Lee. She has played characters in such incredibly popular television series as Law & Order, Blue Bloods, The Good Wife, The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel, American Horror Story, Mr. Robot, and of course, the very series that brings us all together today, HBO's The Gilded Age. Ashley and Keith, I am so honored and excited to welcome you to the Gilded Gentleman table today. I'm so happy to be here, guys. Thank you so much for Ashley, Keith.
3: I'm so happy to be back, especially joined by Ashley today. Thanks, Carl.
2: Oh, we have a lot to say, and we're going to have a lot of fun. So we really have so much to address today, which is why I wanted both of you on the show, Keith, to talk about some of the real history on who Mamie Fish was, and Ashley, to talk about how you created her character and how you portrayed her on the Gilded Age. And most importantly, you know, I am so anxious to talk to both of you about how we can and should interpret Mamie today with our modern eyes. So let's just jump off and start with the history. So Keith, just who was Mamie Fish? And how did she get into this New York gilded game? Who was her family, her husband? Where did the money come from? Can you just locate for us who she was?
3: Yeah. Uh, so in briefest terms, Marion or Mamie Fish was born Marion Graves Anthon or Anton. I'm actually not sure how she would have pronounced it, but it is a German origin last name. She was born to a line of really successful, relatively wealthy lawyers, politicians, and she was actually born out on Staten Island in central North Staten Island, somewhat conveniently in the same sort of town neighborhood as the Vanderbilts originated, um, called Castleton on the north shore of Staten Island. But what she did most advantageously was marry into the very old and storied Fish family, whose roots went back to long before the revolution, and who had mixed and mingled and married into pretty much every other major family in old New York, uh, what we would refer to as the knickerbocracy of old money New York. So the Stuyvesants, the Livingstons, and of course the Fish themselves, giving Mamie essentially bragging rights far above and beyond what just about every other society matron during the Gilded Age could lay claim to. Even the Mrs. Astor Caroline Webster Skirmerhorn had married into the relatively lowly Astor family who only two generations before her husband had been literally beaver trappers and skinners. So Mamie really took pride in her her own good lineage as well as the lineage of the family that she married into.
2: So how can you place her in the world of Caroline Astor and Alva Vanderbilt? How did she fit into that constellation?
3: Yeah, she was right in there with them. But the biggest and most important differences to keep in mind is that as far as Caroline or the Mrs. Astor is concerned, Mamie was fully 23 years younger than her. So there's really a generational divide between the way that Mrs. Astor comported herself in society and the way that Mamie did. And similarly with... Alva, Vanderbilt, Belmont, uh, while they were contemporaries as far as age is concerned, there was a really big societal difference between them, particularly in that Alva was a Southerner as she was born. She came up with her family after the Civil War and married into the relatively new money Vanderbilt family. So she didn't have the kind of pedigree that Mamie could boast of. And likewise, as I said, she was also a generation apart from Mrs. Astor. So they were of a type but three different types of society leaders.
2: Is there any advantage you think that Mamie had over Caroline or Elva?
3: Definitely with uh, Caroline or Lena, she had the advantage of an undisputed family tree. There was really nowhere in either Mamie or Stuyvesant's family tree that you could point to and say, these people came from nothing, which was not quite the same for Lena Astor. With Alva, Mamie also had the more localized roots of having New York illustrious ancestry that Alva couldn't quite claim because she herself was originally from Alabama and the Vanderbilts had risen from essential poverty on Staten Island just a couple generations prior. So she very much had a certain level of authority in New York society that the other two women couldn't quite claim in the same way that she did.
2: Now, Ashley, when we first see Mamie, it's the first episode of season one, and there's something a little different here. Here is a character. She's got a big Newport house. She's inviting people over to play games and (gasps) gasp, have some fun doing it. So what do we know about Mamie from that very first scene? What does that establish about her?
1: Well, it's well-documented that Mamie Fish loved the younger set. She was a big champion of putting people together. She also, while sort of staying within the strictures somewhat of the 400, frequently chafed at the idea that there were only 400 interesting people to know in New York City. She spoke, as she got older, a lot about how she thought people shouldn't just be money trees. They should have interests and thoughts and opinions and things to say. They should be titillating dinner partners. And she got really frustrated with how tightly laced the society that she operated in was. And you see it right in that first moment. I think there's something great about in a society that prides itself on gaiety and lightness. So often people are so hamstrung that they're not actually fully able to enjoy themselves. They're just putting on the appearance of enjoying themselves. Mamie enjoyed herself. And that also meant sometimes having no patience. There's a moment when she says, who who makes you think that I, what makes you think I'm here to have fun? Which is very much a Mamie quip. She was well known for her witticisms, which were sharp at times. And She just really wanted to enjoy herself, and she was known for having the gayest table of any functions, and she's just really into championing this new set. I think when the new set came through, new money, that she was delighted to have new people to play with. That might be more interesting than, say, the Lena Astor's or the people that she had been partying with beforehand. So do you think there was a sense of rebel about her? I do think there was a sense of rebel about Mamie, and that is, of course, within its own limitations. Mamie was someone who was quite quick-witted, but she was barely literate. She was not educated. She also did not believe in women's suffrage. She was once quoted as saying that good marriage was the most right any woman should be expected to enjoy, which is intense. But she certainly tired of the Interminable hours of parties sat sitting at stultifying dinners, getting quietly nodding off over glasses of wine. She really sought to inject a little liveliness into the proceedings, and that's one of the things that I love about her is how she's always looking for a new, exciting way to entertain. So Keith, what do you
2: think about that from the historical sources you've read? What do you think about who she was and how she acted?
3: It's very hard to say definitively, just like Lena Astor, um, and maybe partially because she was barely literate, as she herself admitted. I think she only attained about a fifth grade education. There isn't a whole lot of primary documentation of what was going on inside Mamie's head. We are very reliant upon books written by other people who knew her. We're very reliant on quotes in newspapers, which often tried to sensationalize her life beyond how sensational it already was. So the best I can do is kind of collate all of that and sift through it for who the woman was behind all of this chaos and all of these little witticisms. But some of the quotes that I don't think any newspaper reporter could have come up with on their own really give me what I think is the best idea of who Mamie was. Things like she'd often be standing at her door welcoming people to her own parties and say things like, I don't remember inviting you, or she'd say, face is getting older in younger clothes, something like that.
1: There's one I love as well, where she said, please make yourself at home. There is no one who wishes you there more dearly than I.
2: (laughs) (laughs) She was certainly direct, right?
1: Yeah. Yeah. At one point, Alva Vanderbilt cornered her and said that she had heard that Mamie had referred to her as a frog to people. And she said, oh, Alva, no, no, a toad, darling, a toad. (laughs) So what is it?
2: I'm so curious, Ashley and Keith, what gave her the strength to do this? Was it just that she had as much
1: money and she didn't care? Or was it she just didn't care? What do you think? I do think, and I have to say, like, right off the bat, that it's really fun to hear Keith talk because he's also more circumspect than I am because Keith is coming from a historical perspective, and I'm trying to make this into a person that I can be. So I am taking some liberties with the information that I've been able to acquire. But... I think her relationship with Stuyvesant was a major grounding force for her. There were not a lot—well, from what I know, given the stories that I have been able to read from Drexel Lair and from other books, the idea that they were high school sweethearts and that he loved her dearly and went to bat for her constantly but had absolutely no interest— in entertaining with her, but loved dearly that she loved it. He would like come home from a business trip and she would have a whole party and people would be staying overnight and using his shaving kit. And he'd say, Well, I guess I'm having a party. I hope you enjoy yourself. And then eat a corned beef sandwich in the kitchen and go to bed, you know? I think that having that sort of base at home does give you a certain level of freedom. She did not have as much money as the Vanderbilts. She was fond of saying that they had only a few million compared to their friends. But I think that freedom and, as Keith pointed out, the idea that she came from an impeccable line. If anybody was going to be able to sort of break through that, it was going to be someone like a Mamie Fish who had nothing to prove and nothing to hide.
3: Mm -hmm. And that's a really great point, both about the marriages and about her lineage with the marriages. A comparison I didn't make earlier when we were talking about Lena Astor and Alva Vanderbilt is that both of them had really kind of miserable marriages at home behind the scenes. Lena Astor famously uh, would try to joke away the fact that her husband, William Backhouse Astor Jr., was essentially always absent from her parties he was never at the receiving line of their home and he was often off gallivanting on his yacht with a whole slew of younger women and Lena would just kind of excuse herself away saying oh it's a shame I don't like the sea or I'd be on the boat with him right now and as for Alva obviously she had a very highly publicized divorce from William Kassam Vanderbilt her first husband um, in 1895 and then very soon thereafter married one of his friends becoming Alva Belmont but In both cases, you've got these women with both backgrounds, husbands, and lineages that can be called into question, which arguably would have made them more defensive as societal matrons because if they misstep or if they try to break the rules in any way, people can point to them and say, you're not worthy of this role. Whereas with Mamie, because of her impeccable lineage, she could get away with so much more than Mrs. Astor or Mrs. Vanderbilt Belmont ever could, which is incredible.
2: And with that, we are going to take a short break, but we'll be back to continue our discussion.
0: Discover why critics are calling Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes, the best film of the franchise. What a wonderful day! It's a jaw-dropping spectacle that demands to be seen on the biggest screen possible. I need to go. Hang on. It is our time. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Now playing only in theaters. Tickets on sale now. Rated PG-13. Some material may be inappropriate for children under 13 Offer subject to change. Valid for qualified residential customers only. Service not available in all areas. Restrictions apply. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one Crispy. So go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour.
2: And we're back. I'm Carl Raymond, the host of the Gilded Gentleman History Podcast, and today we are discovering the real Mamie Fish with historian Keith Talion and actor Ashley Atkinson. Now, Ashley, I want to go back to something that you said, and it's such an interesting perspective, both to have someone that comes from a historical background and someone that comes from a theatrical background here. In playing a historical character, it's really a blending of those two things, right? And you take what history you know, but then you bring yourself to that. And how do you make it a real living, breathing
1: person? Because you have to take liberties, right? Yeah, that's a great question, Carl. Whenever I'm approaching a character, there's a moment where I have to say, where am I in her? Where do I find myself? Where's our points of intersection? Where are our points of difference? And it's also, I've taken little liberties and had fun injecting some things that maybe weren't, as the kids would say, a thing back then. Like I truly uh, look at stories like Mamie doing eight course dinners in 30 minutes or less, where guests had to hold on to their plates so that the servants wouldn't whisk them away (laughs) as soon as they were placed. And I go, oh, that woman had ADHD. She absolutely, (laughs) absolutely had some sort of attention deficit. And so I sort of brought it to Mamie. Mamie is always looking around the room for the more interesting person to talk to. She is not able to stick with a conversation for very long. She jumps in. And this is also in Julian's writing. We had not discussed this but by episode you know episode 1 when you first see me I'm escorting the youngsters to play together and then I buzz off to someone else and then when we see me in Newport at the tennis match I immediately am jumping into conversations that I you know I'm sort of half in half out and then immediately asking what where, where do you what are your plans for dinner and everybody's like are you are you talking to us we didn't think you were even in this conversation so I think that finding where we intersect was incredibly useful, and then getting the history so that you feel rooted and you know that these choices will add up to a complicated human person that history has the uh, upper hand on. What did you know about Mamie
2: before you were cast to Player, and was there anything particularly interesting about her at the beginning that you thought, oh, I really want to play that?
1: Uh, Yeah, there's a lot of things. And less before I was cast, but there was a nice gap of time between when I was cast and when I started to work. And I got to do a lot of research at that time. And of course, the first things you find out are the parties, the doll party, which we portray in the show, um, which was every bit as weird as it seems. On the show, um, she would make people baby talk to those dolls. They had to feed them and give them drinks. She had a famous party for a dog in which she gifted a $20,000 Harry Winston diamond collar. A dachshund ate so much that it fainted and had to be carried out of the party. There's a story about when she received a bouquet from, I believe, Hot Springs, and there was a bee in the bouquet, and she was so enamored of this bee that she uh, made—I'm not sure who, uh, whether it's a servant or a tradesman, but someone was forced to fashion a gold leash and collar for the bee, which would then be affixed to the flower arrangement, so that bee was not able to leave, and it became her pet— now, whether all of these are true, as with the infamous monkey dinner, where uh, I there are differing stories on this, whether this was actually Mamie's party or not, but uh, there was the rumor of Prince Del Drago of Corsica being a royal guest at a dinner, and Mamie and her... <laughs> Her her friend Harry Lair, who was her partner in crime for so many of these tales, had dressed a monkey up in a royal uniform and seated him at the table betwixt them and got him drunk on champagne until he climbed above to the chandelier and started throwing light fixtures at the guests. And the monkey dinner was really, both a feather in her cap and in the press, she was uh, excoriated for it. They said, Well, if Mamie Fish takes over the 400, and because there was sort of a, a vacuum at the top as Lena Astor stepped back further and further, they said, Well, if Mamie Fish runs the 400, it'll all be monkey dinners and donkey parties, and we can't have that.
2: So, Keith, what do you think about this? <laughs> what do you do from a historical perspective with all this? The sense of outrageousness that that Mamie displayed. And do you think she was a threat to the 400?
3: Um, I think calling her a threat may be a bit more negative than is owed. Not that those are your words, but I, I don't know that she was a threat necessarily to anything other than the older generation that was holding on to power. Mamie was, as Ashley mentioned, very bored by the way that parties and society were run Up until the turn of the 20th century, as that old guard led by Lena Astor of Murray Hill and later of 65th Street finally began to age out and back away from the forefront of those sorts of decisions. So I think all Mamie was trying to do more than threaten the old order was to simply replace it with something that she found to be more fun, more forward thinking, and also more... Independent of the influence of Paris and London society, which had long influenced the way that Lena Astor's generation had tried to comport themselves. There were, for decades, all through the first half of the 19th century, a kind of quiet desperation among American aristocracy to be more like London and more like Paris. So that we could prove we as wealthy Americans are more than simply backwoodsmen out in the colonies across the ocean. And so you see that. In Lena Astor and her generational ilk, these people trying to prove that we're as good and as pedigreed and as um, culturally astute as Parisians and Londoners, Mamie was a proud American socialite. Her lineage went back on both her and her husband's side well before the revolution in what would become the United States and she – took advantage of that by throwing parties and comporting herself as a truly American society leader, whatever that means. And so in that, she kind of got to invent an entirely new way of entertaining and an entirely new way of running society, which I suppose would have been threatening both to people that were used to the old way of things, but also to the less wealthy classes of America looking up to society for an example of how to comport themselves what does the general American population do with a society that's now throwing monkey dinners? And after that, there are reports of ostriches pulling carriages around in Newport and of the bee as a pet. What do you do with that? How do you look up to something like that? And I think therein lies the closest thing to a threat um, that I think she may have held, but it was just different.
2: One of the things that I find really so fascinating amidst all the horror of the Gilded Age was actually how women took power and how women asserted power because the traditional way was really very boring and really very prescribed and really didn't give them very much power. So I want to ask you both this. So, Ashley, do you think some of the outrageous events that Mamie did or how she comported, do you think she was taking power?
1: I do, actually, and I think that she was a great balance of outrageousness and ferocity and also a deep thoughtfulness in how money was being spent and how it was functioning in the economy of that time. She was very intent on placing money with tradespeople. And she thought that rich people owed. I mean, it is sort of a trickle down (laughs) concept but as well as being a great philanthropist she certainly thought it was her responsibility to put money into the economy and employ butlers and underbutlers and florists and designers and jewelers and she said at one point is is there nothing sadder than a butler With nothing to do. (laughs) But she also was a great philanthropist. Uh, There's a great story about a painter that she knew who taught classes and said that he had a student with real promise, but she was not going to be able to attend a higher education in in art. And Mamie burst into his class one day and said, Point her out. (laughs) And so he did. And she said, I'm funding your education, but what you have to promise me is you won't stop you won't let all of this go. You must continue. And she did. And Mamie was known for, you know, uh, raising $48,000 in that time's money in an evening for the American Red Cross. She was certainly someone that gave back to Newport as well as to the city. As clear as she was that being married was the only right that she thought women needed or should enjoy, she certainly wielded that money and that power that she had as a wife and as a leader in society to help others and try and push the envelope of what was acceptable at the time. And so I think the outrageousness was to entertain herself while she was uh, trying to accomplish headier things.
3: Uh, I think that's absolutely valid and very true. One of the more, I guess, you know, in modern parlance, you'd call problematic things about Mamie is she was a steadfast believer in segregation of the classes and of the races. And she very much believed, as did many women and men of her generation and of her wealth, that she was born to this wealth and to this status so that she could serve as a leader. And part of that was, as Ashley pointed out, this sort of belief in almost trickle down economics and employment that people who were meant to be butlers, meant to be florists, meant to serve you know, the, the wealthier classes, that that was their lot in life. And her lot in life was to lead and to spend and to direct society. And so I do think that that from a socioeconomic societal standpoint, um, makes me a bit wary of Mamie's intentions when she did some of the things that she did. But um, as Ashley pointed out, a lot of what she did as far as blazing kind of an unusual and unexpected trail for women to be more assertive, be more publicly present, and to break a lot of societal expectations and boundaries, I'm not sure if she did that on purpose, but her presence in society allowed for something to that effect.
2: So, Ashley, how did you start to create Mamie? What material did you get or insight or what were
1: you told or how did you build this character? One of the great things that Michael Engler told me when I was starting to look at the text for Mamie that Julian had sent over was... He had pointed me at the actress Peggy Cass. I don't know if you remember Peggy Cass. To tell the truth. Exactly. Peggy Cass was a sort of guest on the panel of To Tell the Truth quite a bit. And there's something about she can be quite pointed, but nothing ever seems to matter too much, which is great. It's a great starting point for Mamie, the idea that... She can sort of take it or leave it, but she doesn't have to be polite about it either way. And I really loved that sort of freedom in a show where so much can rest on a table setting or an invitation. The idea that there's someone who is sort of living under the uh, idea of, well... None of this is really an issue, right? We have more money than God. It's all social. None of it really means anything, does it? it is in itself a little bit revolutionary. And I really liked that aspect of her every time. And, of course, she would get offended and she would have her own rows and sort of um, vendettas against people. She could certainly be very, very, very petty. But I really loved the idea of someone who could sort of take or leave all of it in a moment. And those contradictions were really where I wanted to start. And some days she's one way and some days she's another. And it really, it felt like the parameters had a lot of room to play in them, which was not what I expected out of a character from this time. Has there been a moment, either in season one, really, or season two,
2: that you think really encapsulates Mamie?
1: Mm. Gosh, that's a really, really great question. I mean, the the season two episode seven, creeping at the door, <laughs> and it's such a small moment, but it's so true. That she gets up, she doesn't get up when uh, when Lena leaves the tea party. She feels no need to do that. But as soon as Oscar's creating a commotion in the hallway, Mamie's the first one up and she is at that doorway trying to figure out what's going on and has no compassion for Oscar whatsoever, is just really entertained By the proceedings. And that feels for me very in line with the historical Mammy and Fish. As someone, even as someone who championed artists, she certainly, there's a, a great story about her going to the theater and just talking throughout the entire show until someone shushed her from a box below. And she was so put upon that someone should have shushed her. In another story, uh, a guy, Mr. Van Aalen, invited her husband, randomly, to go see... Um, a per- they were having a-, a party and there was going to be a performance. And neither Mamie nor her compatriot, Harry Lair, were invited, but their partners were. And Mamie was so mad upon it, about it that she stormed up to Mr. Van Aalen and, and demanded an answer. And he said, Well, you'll be too loud. You'll ruin everything. And she said... Well, that's fine. But if you don't invite Harry and I, then we are going to tell everyone that your cook has smallpox and then no one will come. What on earth? <laughs> so really the idea of everything, as much as I want to talk about her philanthropy and how great she was in some aspects, in a historical aspect, because good God, was she problematic viewed through a modern lens. A lot of it was just for her own edification and her own entertainment. And I think why I like her is because she could see past what was expected and what was perceived as necessary in that time into something that was more interesting than that.
2: I think that is so interesting, and you bring up such a fascinating point, is how— layered these people were and how polarizing and how complicated cuz people are polarizing and complicated today and i think one of the interesting things and keith i want to ask you about this one of the problems with history is we don't have all the information there are letters that are burned there are diaries that don't exist we have newspaper recounts which are anything but reliable you know there's sensationalism Keith, how do you feel as a historian? How do we take all this information that exists about people and get to something that's balanced and accurate with our modern eyes it's a problem right
3: it's difficult as a researcher you know i can dig through archives all day but i'm essentially reliant upon what's been recorded about that person and very often especially in the 19th century during the gilded age a person's life can be distilled down to their achievements and for men who tended to be in business in industry It's quite easy to make a timeline for someone like Stuyvesant Fish. You can say he was born to this family. His father did this. He went to Columbia. He worked here. He became the director and then the president of this railroad. And he got married and had these children. And so his life is very much there for you to chew on. But for women, so much of their identity was lashed to the man that they married. And it becomes very difficult to separate The woman from the family that she joined through marriage and through the children that she creates. And so, for people like Mamie, the little nuggets that were left in these unreliable news reports and things are often all I have to go on to form a person beyond the husband, beyond the the wifehood and the society leadership. There's a really great biographical article written about her in 1902 lumped in with a story about the monkey dinner and among these are the fact that she does not hide her age which was notable enough to put in this article at a time when uh, Lena Astor, the Mrs. Astor, was notorious for deep into her advanced age wearing a jet black dyed wig to hide the fact that she was aging. Um, Additionally um, it noted that Mamie had gone to Europe in June, this was 1902, but not for the uh, coronation of King Edward, Queen Victoria's Son who was being um, coronated that summer, um, they made a note that she went to Europe, but not for that. So typical. Yes, and also that in in general, another um, article I read about her is that she was a very proud American, as I mentioned earlier. And they they made a note that was really funny to me that she only goes to Europe incidentally. It's almost like she almost, she only finds herself in Paris by accident, against her will.
1: Whoops. Yeah.
3: <laughs> right. And Woke so up that in
1: Paris again.
3: And so nuggets like that collectively. They paint a picture of a woman that was far different than anybody of her generation and of her societal standing. And from that, I can begin to understand who she was beyond just being Stuyvesant Fish's wife.
2: And with that, we are going to take a short break, but we'll be back to continue our discussion.
0: Cheers to a great day
3: and this ice-cold Corona. You know what would make this day even better? My grandma's carne asada. Throw in some music. We can watch the game. Or we could keep it simple. Corona, la vida mas fina. Get your Corona at ordercorona.com. Relaxed responsibly. Corona extra beer imported by Crown Imports, Chicago, Illinois.
2: And we're back. I'm Carl Raymond, the host of the Gilded Gentleman History Podcast. And today we are discovering the real Mamie Fish with historian Keith Talion... And actor, Ashley Atkinson. So, Ashley, what resources did you use? You've, you've clearly done reading and research and articles and books and all of this. And I'm sure it just accumulated, right? The, the more oh, you yeah, got into the right. yeah, it's still going. Right. What did you find the most helpful, the most useful? What were the best tools you found to develop your own, your own interpretation of who Mamie Fish was?
1: Uh, I found a lot of the... There was a book that I'm blanking on that was given to me right at the beginning, and I remember the first mention of Mamie Fish in it is it said, I screenshotted it, because I read it, of course, on an iPad, that Mamie Fish was responsible more than any other individual for the downfall of Gilded Age society as we knew it. (laughs) And I thought... Hot damn. (laughs) This is going to be fun. Um, I really do love the Elizabeth Drexel Lair book. I think it gives us more Mamie than a lot of the other books because she and Harry were so close. It's also not a fawning portrayal. Ms. Drexel Lair was in a loveless marriage with Harry Lair, which she will be the first to tell you about. And because she and Mrs. Uh, he and Mrs. Fish were so very, very close for such a time, and really just running around New York and Newport wreaking havoc together, Mamie would dress Harry in drag. It was a whole thing. I mean, I think Mamie encouraged Harry to dress in drag. Actually, I don't think that was anything that Mamie was forcing. Harry to do. Harry writes a lot about how he likes women's clothing and how he loves picking out clothing for his wife and other women. But I really like getting to see an insider, more nuanced view of Mamie than—we never have any text from her herself, so it feels a little truer than perhaps the paper's. I really found that useful. Also, there are Instagram accounts that gave me great little parcels of information. Uh, As a matter of fact, that Keith's uh, Instagram page is wonderful. I got that story about uh, the theater off of Instagram today, about, about her getting yelled at in a box for not watching the show. I don't think I'm alone in finding her a complicated and kind of enthralling historical figure. And so there's lots to read about her. You don't know what's true necessarily, but there's lots to read. But isn't that exactly what you just said?
2: Isn't that the point where a historian and an actor intersect? You have to take the information you have and come to a truth about it. You're creating a person a living, breathing person as truth, you're creating analysis, assessment. Am I right about that, Keith? Do you agree with
3: that? Absolutely, yeah. Yeah,
1: absolutely. And I think it's more interesting for me to take most of those stories as written and go, well, what's the why? If she did all those things, then why? To what end? Was it just to entertain herself? Was there some grander concept at play there Was it just having money and being bored? How much did she champ at the bit of being reined in by the idea of the 400? And how much power did she feel like she had to push at the edges, to mix my metaphors, of that envelope?
2: Now, Ashley, I want you to play screenwriter and director here for just a couple minutes. And if you could create... A whole episode of The Gilded Age, just centered on Mamie Fish. How would you script it? What would you want to happen? Is there a moment? Is there a story of her?
1: how would you How would you create that? There is one story that I love, and there's no one certain narrative around it. And it is a little late in the timeline. But I am fascinated in the story of when Mamie's mouth may have gotten the better of her and caused her family's downfall. But she insulted, basically, a woman at a party. And it turned out that the woman was the wife of the president of the board of the Central Illinois Railroad and basically called... Stuyvesant Fish, Mamie's husband, to task for the behavior of his wife, at which point, according to Elizabeth Drexel Lair, Stuyvesant Fish listened to the increasingly heated takes on his wife from this guy, Harriman, and then by the end stood up, knocked this guy on his keister and said, well, that is my retort. And By some accounts, that is the reason why Stuyvesant Fish was removed as president of the Central Illinois Railroad, which ultimately trickled down into Mamie having a little less power, staying in Newport a little longer every year, sort of ceding her throne as one of the triumvirate that was the head of the 400. And I think it was actually Tessie Ulrichs that sort of took more as Mamie moved back, but I might be wrong about that. I just think it's so, I would really love to, of course, after having explored Mamie's rise to the ascension of being one of the people that run the 400, I think it's so interesting and sad and back-footed to see her decline And I wonder if she would have any humility in that moment, if there's ever... I've not seen Mamie regret anything up until this point, and it's a color that I've not been able to uh, play yet, and I'd be really interested to see what that felt like on her. So. Sort of the downfall of Mamie Fish, I think, would be a really interesting episode to see her taken out. Because, as so many people are, I mean, the Gilded Age is full of stories of people that like said the wrong thing or did the wrong thing or invited the wrong person and then they're out. Ward McAllister, as played by Nathan Lane, is a great example. And Ward McAllister published this book and it was his, it was the end of him. He was persona non grata in that society after that. which is so interesting as it, he touted himself at the heights of it and being the arbiter of taste as he was writing that book, which was the whole point of the book. But I, I like seeing how these people move out of these spaces as well as how they ascend the heights of them.
3: One thing I want to say, bring up Ward McAllister, is that Mamie always hated Ward McAllister, particularly because of the way that he upheld the old guard and their grip on society. So there's a great quote, I believe it's in... um, the book Mrs. Astor's New York by Eric Homburger, uh, where it's describing how because of McAllister's downfall, no one that he had supported through much of the Gilded Age actually attended his funeral. And the quote about Mamie is that Mrs. Stuyvesant Fish was positively incandescent in her absence.
1: Oh, wow. <laughs> and see, this is an interesting thing about, uh, about history and television, right? Like, we don't have a Harry Lair in this version of the Gilded Age. So it feels like uh, Nathan's Ward McAllister is sort of filling the gap of both of those characters instead of there being two distinct individuals, one who is siding largely with the new and one who is siding largely with the old guard. And so Nathan's doing a little bit of double duty television-wise when historically it was different.
2: Now, I have to ask the trademark Gilded Gentleman question. Ooh. Yes. Keith knows what it is. You know, we've really talked a lot about Mamie today, and she was challenging. She was complicated. She certainly had aspects that today we would look at and just really, it would be difficult to reconcile today. Mm -hmm. She very much was a woman in her time, of her time. But my question is this, and I have to ask both of you this, if Mamie were sitting right here with us today at the table... What would you want to ask her? What do you think she'd say, and what would you like her to ask you? Keith,
3: you first. Uh, I think once she stopped screaming um, (laughs) from all the technology and the bright lights, um, once we got her settled down and settled into the 21st century, I think what I'd want to know is essentially what you can't know from the press and from third-party books is that once the party was over... Once the dress was off, once the pearls were away, once everybody was gone from the house and it was just Mamie at home, maybe with Stuyvesant, what was it like to be a leader of 19th century New York society? Did she actually enjoy herself in that role? And maybe how would she rather have been able to comport herself? I think I'd want to know who the real Mamie was behind all the outward trappings that she was, in many ways, almost forced or at least expected to display publicly.
2: So, Ashley, if Mamie were sitting here at the table with all of us this afternoon, what would you want to ask her?
1: I think my answer is uh, along the lines of Keith's, but it's a little more pointed to the idea, if she is someone who uh, has been magically sort of transported into this time with us, once we catch her up... I'd love to know what else she would have liked to do if at the end of the day the place that she inhabited in our history and our society was enough for her or if it was just the thing that she felt she was allowed to do. Because as much as I make a meal out of her fighting the boundaries and the strictures of her time period. At the end of the day, she was a woman in society. She didn't, other than her philanthropy, she didn't create anything. She didn't leave anything except for children and a husband. And I wonder, with her love of art and artists—well, at least of artists and some art—if there was something else that she wanted to do that she felt unable to, either because she had married young and was in society and couldn't be an artist, or whether there was just another calling that she felt anywhere. And maybe I'm putting too much on her because I want to her to be that way. And I'm sure she would probably be dismayed with that. I think she would want to ask me, how dare I? I think I've probably gotten it all wrong. And I can't imagine her being pleased with any portrayal of herself, but she would certainly want to watch it. And as we were saying sort of before we started today, I think she would be so pleased that we were all here talking about her. I think she'd be thrilled to know that there was still a conversation around Mamie Fish so far in the future. But I think she'd ask me (laughs) how, how I thought I had the right to be the person to portray her. Well, I think that's what's
2: so interesting about talking about so many of these historical figures is they are worth talking about today. They are complicated. They are conflicting. And we try to make some sense of them. Oh, my gosh. Ashley and Keith, thank you so very much for joining me today on The Gilded Gentleman. Ashley, we can't wait to see you in upcoming film and TV and even live theater. What's what's coming up for you? What are you working on?
1: Oh, gosh. Uh, Carl, right now I am doing uh, the second half of American Horror Story Delicate, which is AHS season 12 with some really, really exciting fellow actors and actresses. It's a really fun time, and I get to do a lot of fun stuff on it. And then I've got some exciting stuff I can't talk about yet for 2024. So you'll just have to come back. How about that?
2: (laughs) And my listeners do follow Ashley at Ashley underscore Atkinson on Instagram. Ashley, your photos of Mamie on and off stage are just so priceless. Thank you. And Keith, it is always a pleasure to have you back on the show. Thank you so much for being here.
3: It's always a pleasure to be here, Carl.
2: And my listeners, Keith and I, have another show coming up on Gramercy Park. And make sure to follow Keith's extraordinary Instagram page, at Keith York City, and do take a live on the streets tour with him. The details are on his website, KeithYorkCity.com. Thank you both so much. Can we do this again? I'd love
3: to. I'd love to. I'll be back.
2: And to my listeners, thank you for joining me for another episode of the Gilded Gentleman History Podcast. The Gilded Gentleman is produced by Bowery Boys Media, and this episode was produced and edited by Kieran Gannon. To stay up to date on upcoming podcasts, special tours, and events, make sure to sign up for the Gilded Gentleman monthly newsletter, and you can do that on thegildedgentleman.com. I invite my listeners to become patrons of the show on patreon.com slash thegildedgentleman. Your support helps me to manage the costs of researching, writing, creating, and producing the show. I couldn't do it without you, and I'll see you soon. After all, what's life without a little glint of gold?
0: Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one Mc Crispy, so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour.